welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in November 2023. This episode is about philosophy of mind, and in particular, physicalism and, more specifically, philosophical behaviourism. So we'll be thinking about what physicalism is in general, we'll focus on philosophical behaviourism, and think about various issues that philosophical behaviourism faces. We'll also see what else we get onto, as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Michael Lacewing, who teaches philosophy at Christ's Hospital School. Hi, Michael. Hello, Simon. And we've got Sally Latham, who teaches philosophy at Birmingham Metropolitan College. Hi, Sally. Hi, Simon. It's good to be back. And Adrian Samuel, who teaches philosophy and religious studies at Cheltenham College. Hi, Adrian. Hi there. Uh, Great to have the three of you with us. Okay, so we're going to talk about a significant position within philosophy of mind, uh, namely physicalism and specifically philosophical behaviourism. Physicalist theories appear on the AQA A-level philosophy specification, which we're basing our discussion around as part of the unit called metaphysics of mind. Uh, But if you think about studying philosophy at university, no matter what you're doing at A-level or IB or hires, it's worth listening to. Um, This is one of a series of Philosophy of Mind podcasts I'm running, including multiple episodes on physicalism. So please check the others out too. Um, So let's start with a basic definition of physicalism um, and thinking about uh, that. Perhaps we'll do an intro to Philosophy of Mind in general. Um, So, Michael, do you want to give us an intro to Philosophy of Mind in general, lead us into physicalism, and then we can get into behaviourism, please? Sure. We can think of philosophy of mind as working in kind of two different ways. And one way is the one that the AQA specification kind of focuses on. So you could ask very general questions about the nature of the mind. And you could kind of drill down into ideas about what makes something a mind, like notions of thought and consciousness. And you could spend a great deal of time thinking about those particular things and how they work and so on. You could also think about the relation of minds to other things as well. So what makes, what, what makes the relationship between the mind and the brain? What is that relationship? Is the mind something which is different from the brain? Um, is the brain this, just the same thing? Is the mind nothing more? And this, of course, has implications for ideas of personal identity, what it is to be a person. It has implications for ideas about life after death, for example. And so we can kind of, the way that we approach it within the AQA syllabus is answering a question in metaphysics. The question in metaphysics here is sort of what exists and what's the nature of what exists. And so we can say, do minds exist as things? Do I have a thing which is a mind or am I a mind? Or should we really say that minds don't exist as things? To say that minds exist is to say that brains exist or perhaps to say something a little bit more complicated, like minds are the ways that brains work, or something else entirely um, is what we mean by the mind. So philosophy of mind kind of has this metaphysical dimension, which is what we're going to focus on, which is trying to understand the nature of reality. And if we take it that there are physical things in the world, which of course not everybody does, if you do epistemology, Um, You'll know, for instance, that there's this position called Berkeley's idealism, which says that there are no physical objects which are independent of minds. But let's put that to one side for now. If there are physical objects, what makes the difference between a physical object that has a mind or is, is minded and ones which aren't? 
And that's a kind of question about the nature of what exists. Is there something different and separate or not? And physicalism is a general position in answer to that. So physicalism would want to make the claim in philosophy of mind, but more generally as a position that everything that exists is physical. Now that's going to take some unpacking. And the first thing we should do is perhaps say it's physical or it depends upon something which is physical in order to exist. So physicalism is going to be a position which rules out the possibility that your mind is something which exists as a separate thing from your body and your brain and the way that it works and could, for example, exist on its own as something which is not physical. It's really important to kind of rule that out. So physicalism wants to say, look, the ultimate nature of everything that exists is described by the scientific discipline of physics. And so we can kind of look to physics to kind of think about, so what's that? It's about energy. It's about matter. It's about fundamental forces that control these things. It's about laws. It's about relations of causation, which physics can map out and describe. And physicalism is a position in philosophy, which wants to say, if you want to get to the ultimate answers about what things exist and what their nature is, physics is where those answers will ultimately come from. That's great. That's really helpful, uh, Michael. Before we go on to behaviorism, Sally, Adrian, anything you want to add to uh, what Michael's just said? I think I'd just probably echo what I said um, last time in the functionalism episode, that the philosophy of mind very much mirrors what's going on in the broader scientific world. So, you know, what we'll see today is the influence of logical positivism on behaviorism, we saw the influence of development of neuroscience on identity theory, um, computer technology on functionalism. So I think it's very much something that sits within the broader theoretical framework of its of its time, which is which is really interesting. I think it's quite nice to see those influences as you're studying individual theories, and obviously the advance yeah. of physics has really helped <laughs> promote physicalism. Yeah, that's that's a good point, Sally. In fact, just a small point for me. So it's really interesting. Um, students to realize that philosophy of mind developed through you know a period of time through a lot of the I mean well beyond you know uh, previous prior to the 20th century but during the 20th century lots of intellectual movements Sally mentioned logical positivism and there were other things that are happening as post second world war as computers were developing and now we're in an age of AI all of that has had big influences on on the things you will be studying in in the metaphysics of mind unit and more broadly the philosophy of mind. Great. So uh, shall we think about behaviorism then? Who wants to kind of have a, a brief intro to this? And then we'll get on to hard and soft behaviorism. Shall I have a go? Um, so yeah, it seems like you could, um, you could, again, go back to Descartes, who often seems to be a person that we return to when exploring where all the different positions come from. Um, and in particular, of course, is Meditations of 1641, and there he sort of tries to take the mental as the starting point for understanding the world um, with his cogito ego sum argument, I think, therefore I am. And he thinks that with the mental, this introspective awareness, that you somehow can really have certain secure knowledge. He, in the first chapter of the meditations, he uses his method of doubt to show that everything you learn through the functioning and the operation of your senses can basically be deceived 
Um, he's got these sensory deception, then he's got dreaming, and then finally he's got some evil demon or um, like could be so, some malfunctioning of the, the mental processes that mean that we're basically confused on anything that we actually perceive. But at the same time, we can't be con confused about our own thoughts. These things are absolutely certain to us. And so he says, okay, let's try and be clear exactly what these mental objects are. And he claims that in many ways they've got cognitive transparency because we just know them directly. He says himself, I see clearly that there is nothing which is easier for me to understand than my own mind. Why? Because he can directly see it. Maybe the stick, for example, he sees has been bent because it's half submerged in some water, or there's some other problem with what he perceives regarding objects external to his mind. But um, the objects in his own mind, these he just can't be deceived about because they are cognitively transparent. And also in many ways, they're cognitively incorrigible. You can't get them wrong. Um, because even if, for example, what you're experiencing isn't there in the world, you're just even hallucinating or something, the hallucination you see is nevertheless real. You can't be wrong about the hallucination. You can only be wrong that the hallucination pictures something before you. And in many ways, then, he believes that justification is immediate in your own mind. You know what is there because in many ways, you are the greatest authority for knowing that it's there because you yourself have experienced it. And so there's this wonderful appeal to clear and distinct ideas in your own mind that can't go wrong and that allow you, therefore, absolute certainty for knowing what's real. And then from that, Descartes will go on to try to create um, absolute certainty about everything else he experiences in the world by grounding it upon God or infinite substance. But in many ways, this came under severe attack as just inadequate, basically. Um, and in many ways, that Descartes was confused by thinking that there were these objects in one's mind. Um, and so Gilbert Ryle powerfully argued that Descartes was guilty of a category mistake um, in claiming that there are these just ideas um, which just exist in your mind. Um, he said that when you represent facts of mental life as if they belong to one logical type or category or range or types of categories, when they actually belong to another, Ryle argues that you're guilty of a category mistake. And in the case of Descartes, he's basically therefore saying that um, it's a bit like with a hand and a wave. You think, okay, we've got two things here. We've got the hand and we've got the wave. And maybe even the wave can survive the death of the hand, just as the soul perhaps can survive the death of the body. And Ryle says, no, no, this is, this is a confusion the mental is probably less like a noun or a thing separate from the brain. Uh, the mental is, is closer to a verb or an activity that the mind or the brain rather performs. And so you're not really sort of understanding it correctly, Descartes. You seem, you seem to think that the mental is a noun or a thing, whereas in fact it's closer to a verb or an activity like the waving of a hand. And the moment the brain, let's say, dies, then also the mind dies. Just as if the hand disappears, 
the waving disappears. And he uses a number of examples, Ryle does, in developing his case. He says, for example, you show someone around a university, you show them all the buildings, and then they say, what did you think of the tour of the university? And they say, well, that was pretty rubbish. They just showed me a bunch of buildings, but they didn't show me the university. And again, this involves a category mistake because you think that the university is something different from the buildings that you were showing them, but that is, that's wrong. The, the, the university is what the buildings belong to, and by seeing the buildings, you see the university. And he uses another um, similar example, such as a military division, and perhaps more engagingly, team spirit, um, which is closer perhaps to the mind. You can think that, okay, the team functions well, it performs well together, it's got team spirit. But it's not like the spirit is a noun or a thing separate from the functioning or the performance of the team. It's nothing more than how the team works together as a whole. And so the whole claim of Ryle against Descartes is that you're guilty of this category mistake because basically you've treated the mental as a noun or as a thing, whereas in fact it's better understood as an activity rather than as a thing. And in many ways, then they get, okay, if we're going to explain the mental as an activity, how might we do that? And um, we talked about this a little bit in the functional episode that was put out when Turing um, came out with his Turing test, when he actually tried to say, okay, how can we identify an activity that shows that there is mental life there or, or something like that similar to it? And so he starts his article on computing machinery intelligence, Turing does in his 1950 article, I propose to consider the question, can computers think? And he says, in about 50 years' time, um, so that, that would be 2000, year 2000 when he was writing, of course, it will be possible to program computers with a storage capacity of 10 to the power of 9 to make them play the imitation game so well that an average interrogator will not have more than 70% chance to make the right identification after five minutes of questioning. So he's not, re if anything, um, he's not raising the bar very high um, to just get over 70% not getting it wrong. You just need 31% of the people managing to get it right. And they needn't be experts. As for this me memory capacity of 10 to the power of nine, that's only... You know, it's not very much, actually. It's about a gigabyte, so he's probably underestimating how much memory it does need to create some sort of performance that's got all the activity that you associate with mental life. But um, So you need more memory, probably. But at the same time, maybe some computers have actually passed this very modest account of the Turing test, which only requires someone who's not an expert being tricked at just about 31% of the time. But nowadays, the Turing test is more commonly known as, as a more a, a proper test where you've really got to make experts be convinced that there is mental activity there. And this behavior that the either the machine or the human or whatever else you're experiencing is performing um, mental activity, this, this behavior can simply uh, trick you into believing, okay, the computer has got mental life or the person has got mental life because you're not sure which one is actually performing it. And 
it's become, in some sense, uh, uh, an ongoing exploration about how you can demonstrate that there's mental life through that that behavior. But that seems to be the very start there. We're moving away from the Cartesian account of the mental as a thing, in some sense, in your mind, the idea, the clear and distinct ideas in your mind. And the mental has now become much more of behavior that you observe and based upon whether the, whether the, uh, the behavior is properly um, thoughtful, um, can appropriately respond to questions, all these sorts of things. The appropriate behavior is judged to be an account of true mental life. And we don't need to go beyond the mental to some separate thing, just like we don't have to need to go beyond the waving of the hand to some separate wave. We can just look at the hand itself and know that it's waving. And in the same way, we can just look at the behavior and say, yeah, in this Turing test, for example, we are persuaded that this behavior shows mental activity. And so mental activity is there, and we don't need to go beyond that mental activity to posit a mental noun, an idea, or some sort of soul. Great. Thanks, Adrian. That gives us a, a lot to work with there. So shall we then think uh, about uh, the spec? Because the spec has two forms of behaviorism on it, um, hard behaviorism and soft behaviorism. So shall we just indicate what both of those things mean as an introduction uh, to, to what we need to discuss. Who wants to explain hard behaviorism for us? The, the, these terms hard and soft, they're, they're not widely used, they're, they're, um, but it's, it's important to kind of just understand what the different positions are, um, which you can then kind of identify in, in other things that you may, may, may come across in thinking about it. So behaviorism is a, as a whole, whole theory as as Adrian just sort of explained, is is this idea of finding the mental in behavior. That way that we can think about this and talking about nouns and verbs is that the focus here for behaviorists is on language. That instead of talking about, as I said at the beginning with the philosophy of mind, what is the mind, assuming it is a kind of a thing, and what we're really engaged in in the is, is ultimately metaphysics describing the world. They will hang on, what are you actually talking about? And let's refocus on behavior. And so hard behaviorism, which it was, was a, a position which, which grew out of verificationism, out of logical positivism. It was a position that Karl Hempel adopted. It should be said he adopted it for a few years. <clears throat> he did actually later reject it as well. Um, but he adopted it for a few years. So the verific and, and, and the basis is the verification principle. So it's, it's actually a, a commitment to a position in philosophy of language that leads you to hard behaviorism, which is a, a little bit different with Ryle. So it's a general position about what statements have meaning. The verification principle says that a sentence can have meaning if it's either analytically true or false, or it can be empirically verified. So take a claim like Hempel's example, Paul has toothache. Well, that's not analytically true. Paul, by definition, is not a person who, su who suffers toothache. Nobody can, by definition, suffer toothache. So it's going to have to be something which is meaningful precisely because it can be empirically verified. But you can't check somebody else's toothache by feeling it with them. You can't observe the pain mentally, what you've got to go on when you talk about the mental states of other people more generally, not just toothache, but you know what somebody wants or how somebody's feeling or what their beliefs are, 
is their behavior. And so what what Hempel said was, and this is the hard behaviorism bit, any claim, any proposition about a mental state is translatable. What it means is a series of propositions about observable behavior, or he extended that to observable physiology. And this is the re- the hard behaviorism bit is in the translatable or reducible. This is the idea. So the meaning of any statement, says the verification principle about all claims whatsoever, is the empirical verification of that. It's, it's the conditions that you need to check that it's right, that it's true or whether it's false. So how do we check whether Paul has toothache? Well, Paul seems to be holding his mouth, his jaw like this, and he's, he seems to be grimacing as he does so. <clears throat> you ask Paul, what's the matter? And Paul says, I have toothache. Now, that's just another piece of behavior. It's linguistic behavior, but it's still behavior. You, maybe you, you, you have a look inside Paul's mouth, and yes, there indeed is a slightly rotten tooth. Maybe you've got a really good machine that you can measure what's going on in terms of um, whether Paul is perspiring, his skin conductance. So we have these different physiological measures that people who, are, who say they are in pain, that's correlated with different changes to sweating and body temperature and these kinds of things. So all it means, says Hempel, to say that Paul is in toothache, has toothache, is that Paul displays or might display, if we did the right tests, these forms of behavior. So if you take that to every claim about behavior, you can't talk about mental states as existing or not existing. They are simply dispositions to behave or they are behaviors in certain sorts of ways. And so there's really nothing more to the question. What, does it, what is toothache? Toothache is certain sorts of behaviors. That's what the concept actually means. It's certain sorts of behaviors which we can check that people are in fact exhibiting. That's hard behaviorism. That's great. Thanks, Michael. Um, so then should we follow up the story with an explanation of soft behaviorism? Uh, Sally, do you want to take this one on? Yeah, sure. So um, soft behaviorism is associated with Gilbert Ryle. There is some dispute about whether Ryle's a behaviorist, but we are sticking to the spec and he is <laughs> he is a behaviorist. And you've still got the same influences as hard behaviorism. You've still got this influence of logical positivism. So this was popping up everywhere, this positivist approach. So in psychology, we'd moved away from these metaphysical speculations about the mind, you know, these kind of unverifiable, unfalsifiable claims of Freud. And we were studying the mind in observable empirical terms. So you have things like Pavlov, who would say, you know, talk about this conditioning and then say, well, how do I know that the animal has this particular mental state? I know through behaviour. So like we've already said, this in, in terms of philosophy became a linguistic theory about how we can understand and analyse the mind um, in a meaningful way. And what Ryle thought was that his first chapter of his book, The Concept of Mind, is a complete attack on what he calls a Cartesian myth, Descartes' myth. So this idea of a private inner mental world where we can have these kind of these thoughts that nobody else can access that I know with certainty and anybody else can only infer. Another big mistake that he thought Descartes made was this mechanistic idea of causation where you had a distinct mental state causing behavior. So I have sadness and that is distinct from my crying. It causes my crying. 
you know, the way A causes B, the way one billiard ball causes another billiard ball to move. That, again, he saw as a, as a mistake. So the so things that he has in, in common with hard behaviourism is this idea that there can be no, no understanding of the mind without behaviour. So I always think of um, that phrase in Forrest Gump where he says, stupid is as stupid does. You know, that, that, that sums up behaviourism. There is no silent, um, silent hidden stupidity independent from stupid behaviour. There's no intelligence that you know, nobody else can see. There's no secretly knowing how to play the piano independently of demonstrating it. But he does, he does differ in a couple of important ways. One of the problems that Hempel had was that sometimes there can be behavioural states that don't seem to be, sorry, mental states that don't seem to be manifested. So, you know, I could be in class and I could have a stinking headache. I can't get any paracetamol. I can't go into a corner and cry. I actually don't show any behaviour at all until that headache has passed. And I never show any behaviour. So this idea of dispositions became very, very important. And a disposition is a potential behaviour. So if we go back to the verification principle, if we're talking about verifiability, this can be in practice or it can be in principle. And a principle verification is a potential. I can give you the situation where this could be verified. There is a situation where it would make sense. So if you think about a, a behavioural disposition, it means if I was in circumstance A, I would do B. So, for example, my headache becomes meaningful in a dispositional sense, because if I was on my own, I would cry in the corner. If I had access to paracetamol, I would take it. So this way of talking in dispositions accounts for the meaningful meaningfulness of mental states that don't actually become manifested at all. So it's perfectly meaningful to talk about sugar being soluble. It has the disposition to dissolve, even if that sugar never, ever comes into contact with any liquid. Because I can tell you the circumstance where we could test that. That's meaningful because if you put it into liquid, it would dissolve. So that, that's really useful for some of the critiques that come later because it means that soft behaviorism can deal with some of the critiques that hard behaviorism can't. Another thing that Ryle recognized is, unlike hard behaviorism, he never claimed we could dispense with mental terminology because these dispositions are infinite. You know, if, I, if John believes it's going to rain, well, if John is planning a garden party, he might move all the furniture back in. If John wants his car cleaned for free, he might move his car out. Now, if John really wants to get wet, he won't take a number. You can go on and on and on. So we can never complete that translation. But what we have to recognise is that the mental terminology is actually shorthand for behaviour, for the you know, infinite amount of, of behavioural dispositions. So mental states are only meaningful in terms of behaviour. But if you think about you know, a secretarial shorthand, it's a small symbol for something much longer. And so when I use the term pain, it's a quick and easy way to talk about all of these behavioural dispositions, which I just don't have time to list for you. But it, that is what it is. That's the only way it can be meaningful. So in terms of causation, I just quickly said something about his idea of causation. So this idea of A causing B, my sadness causes me to cry, that doesn't exist. That's a mistake. It doesn't mean we can't understand mental causation in a different way. So, for example, if I was to say, what caused the window to shatter? Well, if I'm saying the brick thrown at the window caused it to shatter, that's two distinct entities, that's two distinct things going on, brick being thrown at window, window shattering. But if I say the window shattered because it was brittle, what I'm doing is, you know, the brittleness caused the window to shatter, then I'm describing the behavioural disposition of the window. 
So that's how we have to understand mental causation very differently. So when I say she cried because she was sad, what I mean is that's her, her, that sadness is a disposition to crying. It's not a distinct entity. That's how she behaves. And in that way, we can have a very different understanding of what we mean when I say she cries because she was sad. There's a lot more to say about Raya, but I'm sure it will come out <laughs> as, we, as we go through. That's great. Thanks, Sally. And thanks, thanks all three of you. So in this half, we've explained or situated kind of philosophy of mind and thought about physicalism within it. We've seen there's kind of a, a kind of grand historical narrative. We've missed out quite a few people, but we've gone from Descartes and seen the the failures of Descartes and how that leads to thinking. Well, perhaps there needs to be some something else going on, and we've landed on behaviour as many people uh, did. And then we've got these two different forms of behaviours, and they're linked. They've got some overlap. But we've got Hempel's what's called hard behaviorism in the in the specification, which is very much about verification and the idea of a kind of complete verification. And then we've got Ryle's uh, type of behaviorism called soft behaviorism in the spec, where Sally says it's a bit more open ended, but uh, the 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 idea is still that we've got mental terms being shorthand for for behavior that we can uh, witness or that 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 people might be disposed to. Uh, to, to, to an act. Okay, so that gives us a big kind of introduction to behaviorism. Um, so I think we'll leave things there. And then the next part, uh, I think more things are going to come out. We're going to think about issues with behaviorism and think about some advantages and, and some disadvantages. And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, this is just to remind you to check out all our other episodes. We have many episodes on all aspects of ethics and moral philosophy, epistemology, philosophy of religion, and new for autumn 2023, uh, philosophy of mind. We hope we'll also be covering other topics soon too, such as stretch topics and philosophers and ideas not on the specification. We've introduced the idea of physicalism and philosophical behaviorism. So now let's think through uh, a plethora of issues for behaviorism. So, Sally, do you want to start things off just by expanding things regarding Ryle, please? Yeah, of course. Um, so one of the immediate objections that Ryle would have faced is, well, there's lots going on in my mind that I don't even have the d disposition to show. Pretty much a Cartesian approach. I have this private inner mental world. You can't see it. So therefore, you know, behaviorism is wrong. And things like doing a mathematical puzzle in your head or silently reading. These initially seem like problems for behaviorism, but what Ryle did was say, if you actually really analyze these, you do have the disposition to behavior. What you've done is you've suppressed it over time. So if you think about um, doing a mathematical puzzle, how did you first learn to count? You would actually physically do it. You would point or, you know, even now you might still count on your fingers if you're, you know, if you're, needing to if you're playing cards you might count the <laughs> count the diamonds so we've actually suppressed that disposition the same with silently reading you didn't do that to start with in fact historically people didn't read in their heads it was seen as very mystical when people first stopped moving their lips <laughs> so we have these dispositions all the time and I think if you take down your guard you, you would often see that actually there isn't very much that's private so if you've ever been in a situation with somebody who's perhaps had far too much to drink and then all of a sudden everything is open because we're unguarded, then there isn't anything private. <laughs> so you know, this idea that, you know, we, we have everything potentially is observable. And sometimes we work to suppress it. 
But then, you know, it's not the case that it it wasn't always there. Um, If students want to try to um, disprove behaviourism, they need to find something where there is an inner mental state with no corresponding behaviour or even disposition. So it's quite hard to do. But one thing that's been suggested, it's a really old fashioned term you don't tend to see anymore, is the after image. For example, if I've looked at a beautiful sunset and I've really enjoyed that beautiful sunset, a little bit later I think about that sunset and I recreate that picture in my mind. That's really hard to suggest that there'd be any potential behaviour for that. That after image is potentially problematic, far more problematic than um, silently reading or silently doing a mathematical puzzle. But then, you know, obviously that's up to the student to assess whether that's a, a, a good criticism or not. That's great. Thanks, Sally. Good. So then let's get on to um, some of the other issues and some of the other uh, criticisms that there might be of behaviourism. So, uh, Michael, do you want to connect this with some of the dualism that is also on the spec, please? Yeah. So Adrian introduced this idea of a of a category mistake that Ryle accuses Descartes of of making. And it was the thought that the mind is a separate thing. Um, it could be thought of as something which is different from the behavior of, a, of an animal, really, as a physical, a physical body. And that's why behaviorism is a form of physicalism, because the, the things that behave are physical things. And so all that exists are, are physical things. So Descartes has an argument to to support the view that we can, in fact, we're not wrong to think that the mind is separate from behavior and the body. Um, and he says, well, look, I can think about, I can quite clearly think about my mind existing distinct from my body. And he calls it, we call it the conceivability argument. And he has an interesting kind of test for, you know, whether we can, whether that's, that, that's the right way of thinking about it. He says, look, you've got to, what you need to do is if you can clearly and distinctly conceive of the mind existing as something which is separate from the body, let's first of all test that. Well, can we? Well, yes, because the mind is defined by thinking. It's, that's what we mean by a mind. It's, it's kind of consciousness and thought. Now, is there anything in our concepts which would make it an analytic truth? This is how we would put it now. It's not how Descartes could have put it back then. We should make it an analytic truth that consciousness and thought can only be possessed by physical things, and Descartes thinks not. Similarly, um, you can think of a a body as something which is extended in space. And again, there's no analytic connection to suggest that bodies extended in space are the things which have thought or consciousness. All right, so the first kind of point is meant to be a point about concepts, that the concept of the mind and the concept of the body don't entail each other. And then he makes the kind of next move, which we can we can simplify slightly. He talks about, well, God can 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 create these things, but let's make it a little bit simpler, and say, well, is it possible that the mind could exist without the body? Is it possible that the body could exist without the mind? And unless you can think of a really kind of clear indication as to what's going, why that's not possible, it looks like the fact that we the the concepts don't make that connection possible. I mean, sorry, don't make that connection necessary, that maybe at least it's possible that the two could come apart. And Descartes can then say, well, hold on, the very idea of something which it is possible for it to exist on its own is the idea of a separate thing. So for instance, I can't say, well, is it possible for the redness of the curtain to exist without the curtain? 
going to go on. No, right? The redness of the curtain is a property of the curtain. You can't have the redness on its own without the curtain. But we've just kind of admitted that you don't have to say that thought and consciousness are properties of a body. So it's possible that there could be a mind which exists separately. But that's very, that's precisely the idea of a separate thing. So it's conceivable that there are minds that exist without bodies. So it's possible that there are minds which exist without bodies. But the very idea that it's possible that there could be a mind which exists as a thing is what the definition of a separate thing kind of is. Compare the redness case. So minds are in fact separate things. That's what our concept points us towards. And so what Ryle has to kind of suggest here or how he has to respond is to turn back up this category mistake idea, which is that actually it's not possible for, it's not conceivable, sorry, for the mind to exist without the body, that once we understand our concepts of thought and consciousness, you cannot go on and say that there could be such a thing as a mind without a body. Now, that, that does have interesting implications in other areas, whether you look at philosophy of religion, could God exist as a mind without a body, and so on. But, but Ryle's very clear on this. This is just nonsense. It's just people are just talking nonsense when they think about minds as things which could exist after death and so on. It just doesn't make any, any sense at all. It's, like, it's contradictions in terms. So that's kind of one kind of argument that one could apply to a behaviorist. There's a second argument which goes in a slightly different direction, which is the a kind of updated version of Descartes' conceivability argument, which comes from property dualists, people who think that consciousness um, in particular, but possibly thought as well, but consciousness is something which isn't physical. Now, not minds themselves, but the property of consciousness. We'll go on to this in, in a moment. The idea is if the mind is just behavior, or if what it means to say that somebody has, like Paul has toothache, is just behavior, then a creature that behaves in exactly the same way as Paul has Paul's feeling of toothache, of pain, which means it must be impossible to imagine a being that behaves outwardly just like Paul does, but doesn't feel toothache. And Property dualists introduce the idea of a philosophical zombie. And they argue that what we've just denied as conceivable is conceivable. It is possible, perhaps in a, in a different world, not this world. Laws of nature are such that creatures behave and they behave just like us, but there's no light on inside. There's no inner sensation. There's no pain and in sadness, there's no kind of feeling of being down. There's just the behavior. Now, according to a behaviorist, just the behavior is everything to be said about the mind. There isn't a feeling. What property dualist wants to call qualia, kind of intrinsic. So if stupid is as stupid does, as Sally said er earlier, then pain is as pain does. What makes pain pain? The way you behave. No, pain is pain because of the way that it feels. It hurts. That's what makes it pain. So for a philosophical behaviorist, it looks like you could have a creature. You can't have a creature which could behave just like us, but not have that inner experience. Now, if that is conceivable, then there's something more to our pain, which is the inner experience, which the behaviorist has simply missed. That the behavior can't be everything to be said about what pain is. It's not just a disposition to behave. There's also how it feels. And so that's a kind of 
updated version of the conceivability argument to show that there's something about the mind which is separate from what's going on in terms of behavior in addition to the behavior. So those are kind of two two problems that the behaviorist faces. Great. Thanks, Michael. I should say, uh, students, that we're going to rattle through a range of issues and problems that are on the spec. And at the end of this segment, I'll ask Sally, Michael and Adrian where they are with all this and what they think of behaviorism. Should we move on to kind of something else that's on the, the spec that I think goes along nicely from what we've been talking about already? So, Adrian, do you want to talk about Hillary Putnam's super Spartans and... Uh, yeah, Henry Putnam um, is also on the syllabus for multiple realizability. Um, but here it's very much about, again, as just been said, it's about trying to f- sort of pull apart the simple identification of the mental with behavior. And just saying in many ways it's more complex. Uh, we just can't see it in that simple way. Coming out with a thought experiment of what he calls a super Spartan, going right back to ancient Greece, to people who are known for being very rugged and, um, and doing their duty uh, regardless of personal feeling. And so they've got this experience of someone who perhaps could be having um, extreme pain or extreme um, sensations, and yet they don't manifest any of that behavior because they've somehow managed to almost disconnect, I take it, their behavior from the experience itself and perhaps a very clear example of this was actually found um in this buddhist self-immolation that happened in 1963 in vietnam where buddhist person was sitting cross-legged and um some of the fellow buddhists actually put some um petrol over him and um and he was set on fire and he didn't flinch he didn't move he didn't um he didn't behave in any outward way at all in response to these flames curling all around him. Now, it's difficult to know quite what he was feeling, but perhaps um, what he'd managed to do was the, the, the mental states were all still there. The pain was present. Um, he was very aware of what was happening to him, uh, being burnt alive. But nonetheless, through practices of meditation and self-discipline, he somehow managed to disconnect um, those mental states from behavior. Now, again, if that's possible, again, it seems though behaviorism is just wrong in trying to simply identify the mental states with behavior because there is this possibility of, in many ways, prizing them apart. And Thomas Nagel has again sort of tried to um, say there's something that's being missed by the behaviorist model, which is very much where you observe um, somebody or something, and you ascribe mental states to it based upon the behavior. They're saying actually, there's almost um, a contextually embedded understanding of the mental. And he does this in his article, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And he says, in many ways, returning to Ryle's thing, um, Ryle's account of a, a category mistake that Descartes was meant to be committed to when he says that the mental was a thing or a noun. He says that, that physical behaviorism is itself uh, committed to a category mistake because it's just using 
too few conceptual resources, namely physical behavior, to understand something that's just more, much more complex and more difficult to understand. And he uses the example of a bat because it's sort of similar to us. It perceives the world, but it's, it's difficult to quite identify with it because the bat just sends out these short, high-pitched shrieks, and the high-pitched shrieks bounce off the surroundings and come back to it, a bit like light does for us, but it's sound. And then somehow the bat has to experience the world around it um, as a mental state based upon all these incoming shrieks. And we can't really, he claims at least, Nagel, we can't really know what it's like to be a bat because the um, experience that the bat is going through is just so different from us. But this is an important part, he thinks, of mental life that means that you cannot really explain things simply in terms of behavior. You've always got to actually look at what it's actually like to be that thing and to experience its position in the world um, as, in some sense, an embodied knower. So the simple behaviorist model fails to really do justice to mental life because it fails to get that sense of what it's like to be someone or something or be like a bat in its account. As we said also with the David Chalmers, which was just mentioned, I mean, in many ways, he says we've got to move away from just a physicalist model then and go more towards um, a sort of a property dualism where you accept that the world is physical, but it's sort of, it's got these properties that can emerge out of it. Um, the way I make sense of it is a bit like you've got all the chemical elements um, for example, sodium and chlorine. But then when you mix them together um, as a compound, such as sodium chloride, which is salt, you suddenly get new properties such as saltiness, which were not present at the original level of the elements. There was no saltiness as an element. The saltiness only comes about with the compound of sodium and chlorine making sodium chloride. Um, sodium itself is an explosive metal and chlorine is a poisonous gas. You don't want to put any of those on your chips or anything. But these properties come about, new properties come about when they are put together in complex ways. And the same seems to happen, they say, with property dualism then. Rather than just thinking about physical behavior, we can say actually the behavior generates new and distinct properties, mental properties, that were not present at the original physical level, just as saltiness was not present at the level of the elements. And this means, therefore, that we've got to go beyond a simple physicalist model and look for a much more complex understanding of the world in which we belong. And similarly, again, even Frank Jackson, again, attacks this model with um, the Mary's Room thought experiment, trying to say, okay, if you could just see things in terms of physical behavior, suddenly when in this thought experiment, the lady um, Mary suddenly experiences the world to be red, suddenly this new world of qualia is opened up like an emergent property um, that suddenly come onto the scene. And you can't really understand that in terms of her physical behavior, in terms of her, I, you know, she knew everything about the color red, she could identify all the proper wavelengths as red. Her behavior was perfect in functioning when it comes to identifying the red. 
But suddenly this qualia, this new emergent property, this experience of what it's like to experience red somehow comes about and the simple physical behavior fails to give an account of that. But at the same time, this, in, the, in the end, Frank Jackson himself struggled with, with believing in this position. He suddenly thought, well, actually, I've got to somehow give an account of how this qualia, this, this, this mental property, um, this experience of redness, which cannot be understood simply in terms of physical behavior, relates, causally relates to the physical behavior itself for the physical world in which we live. And so he was forced to, to sort of believe in epiphenomenalism, that there are this, just these, the mental properties supervene or just sit on top of causally inadequate or causally inert, really. They don't actually f uh, affect the physical world to which they belong. But in this way, um, Jackson was hoping to somehow hold on to the naturalistic world of physical explanations in which everything makes sense, and at the same time allow for these emergent properties which cannot be simply explained in terms of physical behavior, such as the experience of red or the experience of what it's like to be a bat or the experience of consciousness, which a zombie, in some sense, somebody behaves identically to a human but lacks consciousness. How can we explain these extraordinary properties like saltiness? But in the end, um, interestingly, Jackson came to reject his original argument and just said, I, I don't see it to be to, to work because what you're doing is you're positing sort of these mental properties and they don't seem to do any causal work. And so Jackson felt that he almost had a choice. Does he actually go back to causal explanations, physical behavior, in some sense where you can explain everything in terms of how things interact? Or does he hold on to intuitions of redness or what it's like to be something and allow them to sort of float above naturalistic explanations. In the end, he decided, actually, if I have to choose between these two, I think it's best to give up on the intuitions of, of redness or something like that that cannot be explained and stick with rigorous explanations, causal explanations of the, um, the physical world. So in the end, he was actually led to reject his claim that we've got to go beyond physical behavior and believe in these emergent properties that, that almost float above the physical world as epiphenomena, um, not causally engaging with the world, but just the causal result of that world. Great. Thanks, Adrian. So just um, a pause then, students. So we've seen quite a few issues just laid out uh, from Sally, Michael, Adrian there. And I suppose they're, they're coming from, from this point of view, that we've got the problem or the kind of kind of worry that you can have thoughts and mental life without behavior. And similarly, you can have behavior without the attendant uh, mental life and, and thoughts. And there's this kind of stubborn kind of worry that we might have that, that kind of mental stuff is different from just the kind of behavioral stuff, right? Even if you can kind of see your way into, particularly what Ryle's trying to say, you know, what Sally was saying about, you know, counting numbers on your hands and working out maths problems, not in your head, but actually on a, on a bit of paper with a, with a pen and all of that stuff that he, that he thinks through. But, but you know, you, you can push it, you can have it so far, but then you can push it and it, then it's, it's kind of collapsing a little bit. 
possibly. So we're going to come back to all this stuff towards the end of this segment. But let's move on um, and think about two other things that are on the spec. And we'll get into something quite specific now with, with Michael, where we're going to think about problems around circularity and multiple realizability, which kind of help us to distinguish between that hard and soft behaviorism that we introduced uh, in the first segment, I, I hope. Uh, Michael. Yeah. So the objections so far have really been from a from a kind of more dualist perspective, putting pressure on the on on the physicalist bit of behaviorism, its commitment to the idea that we can we can understand the world in in those terms. This particular kind of couple of objections is is could could easily be made. In fact, you know, was made and pressed by the view that, for instance, the mind is the brain. Um, which is a perfect, you know, another physicalist position that we'll, we'll discuss in another episode. And it's to do with the particular way in which behaviorists want to attach uh, behavior to the mind to behavior through language. And we talked about this particularly with Hempel saying, okay, so what it means to say that so-and-so has any particular mental state, I used a very simple one toothache, um, but we could go for something a little bit more complicated, but you know, say that so-and-so is afraid of snakes. Let's go with something a little bit more complicated. So Paul is afraid of snakes. And, and Ryle says, look, what that, the meaning of that sentence is given by the conditions that would verify it. And I'll look at multiple realizability first as a problem for that particular claim. So what conditions would verify that? And you can say, well, it really depends on the circumstances. Um, as to, and, and a whole bunch of other things that we might say, well, Paul is afraid of snakes, but let's also, let's also think that say Lyra is afraid of snakes as well. So Paul and Lyra are both afraid of snakes. So what does Paul do? Well, Paul, when he sees a snake, he jumps two foot in the air and screams. Lyra is a little bit more sensible and she backs slowly away. So it looks like you've got very different behavior and yet it's supposed to be manifesting exactly the same um, exactly the same mental state. And you can really extend this in, in, a, in different ways because it's not quite clear that there's anything that you could rule out. As long as you had a, a mind which reacted or thought or, or had a set of beliefs, for example, you could, whenever you, you're afraid of snakes, so whenever you see a snake, you try and cast a spell on it because that's what you think you can do to immobilize the snake. And, you know, spells could be anything. So this is the way that I manifest my fear of snakes. I see a snake and I go, hocus pocus, you know, snake go crocus. It could be any nonsense set of syllables. And that's indication that I'm afraid of snakes. Well, it looks like this list could go on indefinitely. So this is the idea of multiple realizability of mental states and behavior. It's really important. Don't confuse this with multiple realizability in functionalism. It's, a, it's the same terms and there are similarities, but this is, this is not the same point. This is the idea that different mental states could, sorry, different behaviors could manifest the same mental state. And it just seems like that, that that's true from everyday life, right? People who have the same mental state, something like fear of snakes, could, could behave in different ways. And even one person on different occasions could behave on their fear of, of snakes in different ways. And it just doesn't look like you could really close off that list. Right? It could go on forever. It's indefinitely long. And so Hempel's claim that you can analyze Paul has a fear of snakes in terms of the possible things that Paul could do to manifest that just, just doesn't seem like you could ever make that translation.
That, that, that's the kind of first problem with multiple realizability. The second is this, that I want to say that Paul has a fear of snakes and Lyra has a fear of snakes, but they do completely different things. But if mental states are dispositions to behave and Paul is disposed to scream and jump three feet in the air and Lyra is disposed to back slowly away, how on earth is this the same mental state? There's nothing which seems to unify their behavior as one mental state. So this multiple realizability really puts pressure on the idea that what makes something the same mental state is that they're disposed to behave the same way. Paul and Lyra are not disposed to behave the same way. So what is it that makes both of their behavior a manifestation of fear of snakes? It's something else. It's not just behavioral disposition. Now we can look to thought or consciousness feeling of fear and what it's... So there's a different kind of analysis that's needed. So that's a kind of multiple realizability. Now, Ryle has a response and he goes, I know, Hempel was wrong. That's why you can't say that fear of snakes is just has the same meaning as this list of behavioral dispositions. It's open-ended. It's indefinite. You've got it. It's a, it's a shorthand, but it's not a shorthand that you can keep completely cash out. But for the other reasons I've already told you guys about, you shouldn't think that fear of snakes is anything other than a disposed to be to certain sorts of behavior in certain sorts of circumstances. But yeah, multiple realizability, that's what I've been saying. That's why I'm a soft behaviorist. So his kind of response to the objection is to join in hitting Hempel and be on the right side of this particular debate in kind of doing it that way. But there's this second objection, which it's not clear whether Ryle can avoid quite so easily. So I said that what, how you show your fear of snakes kind of depends on what else you believe. All right. So maybe if I believe that I can cast a spell on a snake, then I do this thing. But hang on, a belief is a mental state. So that ought to be something that I could talk to you in terms of you know, changing that into in terms of your behavior. So when I'm trying to give you your analysis of what behavior disposition of fear of snakes is, I have to refer to this other thing called a belief. But I'm not supposed to do that. I'm a behaviorist and a belief is just manifestation of something else. But that, if I try and tell you, so what is the belief that I can freeze a, a snake by a spell? Well, how does that manifest itself? Well, here's one way, okay, that if I want to freeze a snake, hang on, hang on. What do you mean want? Want is a mental state. And it just goes on. That the, only, the problem is that whenever I try and refer to, to give you an analysis of the behavioral disposition, I have to go to another mental state. So the, I can't actually analyze mental states in terms of behavioral dispositions. I have to analyze mental states in terms of other mental states. And that's a real problem. It seems even kind of for Ryle, because he still wants to say that mental states are all behavioral dispositions. That's kind of all they are. So there's kind of nothing else. And what Ryle actually says is you're trying to do this too much piecemeal. Okay. It doesn't kind of work piecemeal. It works kind of all together. It really is all of these circumstances kind of adding up in all of these ways gives you the kind of the, the, the level at which you kind of trying to sync the two types of, of, of talking. So he reckons there probably is kind of enough there to allow you to say that the circularity is something to do with the way that you're trying to approach the analysis. And you shouldn't try to approach the analysis in precisely that kind of a way. 
but there's a kind of a question, I suppose, as to whether whether if you're not trying to reduce mental states to behavioral dispositions linguistically, is it okay then to have that kind of circularity? Is that a problem? Sometimes we we do give circular definitions. I mean, hopefully, if they're very, very, very long circles, they can still be really informative ones. That's great. Thanks, Michael. Um, right. One other thing to go through, and then we'll hear what you really uh, all think about behaviorism. Sally, do you want to t- tell us about the asymmetry between self-knowledge and knowledge of other people's mental states, please? Yeah, sure. So let's just go back to what Ryle was objecting to in Cartesian dualism. And it was this inner private mental world, which is known via introspection. So this idea of looking within and knowing one's own mental states with certainty, incorrigibility, indubitability. And Descartes believed that he knew his own mental states via introspection with certainty, but not anybody else's. And for that reason, dualism has a problem with other minds. Now, what Ryle did was remove that distinction. He eliminated this private inner mental world as meaningless. We can't talk about it in in any meaningful way. It's unverifiable. So the only way to meaningfully talk about mental states and know about mental states is via behavior. So he collapsed the distinction, which means that knowledge of my own mental states and knowledge of other people's ought to be symmetrical, which means that I know about my mental states in the same way I know about yours, which is observation. Okay, which is empirical, verifiable observation, because there is no introspection, because there's nothing to introspect. That private inner mental world is a is a category mistake. Now, the problem with that is, as lovely as that would be, and we would have no problem of other minds, that that asymmetry is seemingly an obvious fact, because I do not look in, in the mirror to know whether I'm happy or sad. Now, I don't check if I'm crying to know if I'm distraught. I do know it in a different way. And I, you know, there's this intuitive feeling that I just know my own mental states with certainty and you can't tell me I'm wrong about them, whereas I could make a mistake about somebody else's. So if I don't know about my own mental states in the same way, then that asymmetry does exist along with all its problems. Ryle actually has some really interesting responses to that. He actually says if you really drill down, you do know your own mental states in the same way as other people's. You observe now, what happens then is you observe your inner monologue. You observe your dispositions. So it may be that, oh, oh gosh, I really wanted to punch that person in the face then. I was angry. <laughs> or I hear myself say, oh, my goodness, this is so boring. Oh, I'm bored. <laughs> and actually, it's not a different in, difference in the type of knowledge. It's a difference in the amount of knowledge. I have much more access to my own dispositions. And I, can, I, I know much more about myself but I don't know it in a different way. It's not that I'm knowing my my own mental states via introspection with certainty and other people's are just observed. So it's about the amount of knowledge, not the type of knowledge. So he goes back to trying to to collapse that distinction then. And that again has a really really interesting implication because it means other people could know your mental states better than you because they're observing you better. And it's really interesting because that sounds counterintuitive, but I, just to use an example, I remember, you know, many, many years ago doing my GCSEs and my mom saying to me, you know, how are you? And I was like, I am fine. It's all good. She's like, no, you're not. She knew I was stressed before I knew I was stressed because she could see it. And even now, my mom knows how I feel better than I do. And you might have experiences of that where people are like, oh, gosh, they can tell that you have a crush on that person because your behavior has betrayed it. Or they can tell that you're seethingly resentful of that person because your behavior betrays it before you do, before you acknowledge it. 
So this seemingly intuitive asymmetry might not exist. Vial might have been quite right to, to collapse that. That's great. Thanks, Sally. Like, lots of good examples there as well. Okay, students, so we've put lots of things out there. We hope we found the right narrative through it all because there's lots of things going on. Uh, so Sally, Michael, Adrian, where, where are you with behaviourism? What, what do you think about it? Who wants to go first? I'll have a go. I think um, for me, it's, it's sort of, it's the right way to go. I find that going inwards um, into your own mind is probably a dark alleyway that probably leads nowhere. I think that the philosophical project is all about a, an explanatory framework in terms of which you can understand the world in which you belong. And the more you go down the route of uh, fundamental dualisms, um, I think the world becomes incomprehensible. And so I think, for me at least, Descartes would be mistaken. I don't think there are objects of experience that we call ideas. I think we have experience of objects and that we've got to make sense of our experience of objects um, by seeing the mental as about things and not as just things in our own head. We experience the world to which we belong and we are in the world trying to make sense of it. And um, the more we detach ourselves from the world and just say, no, no, we've got ideas in our head, and then we somehow work outwards from them to the world to which we belong seems to be mistaken. So I think behaviorism, for me at least, is on the right pathway of situating ourselves in the world. But at the same time, I find um, slightly limited uh, in its understanding. It's, it's very much... Um, following the logical positivist program, wanting uh, definite criteria in terms of which to demonstrate its claim. Because obviously, following um, logical positivism, you adopt the linguistic turn where you're all concerned with finding criteria for demonstrating that propositions are about something, i.e. that their sense has a reference, and so they're, therefore they're meaningful. And this uh, emphasis on the criteria of propositions um, and demonstrating that claims are meaningful, I think is a valuable way of clarifying one's thought, but I think it can also be um, restrictive and take you away from the real project of understanding um, towards the project of just demonstrating that your claims um, have truth conditions. And I think that can be a problem. And for me, behaviorism does fall prey to um, some sort of attempt to show that there are clear criteria um, in terms of which it can demonstrate that its propositions are either true or false. Um, but the project of understanding slightly gets eclipsed by that. And I think that that is uh, probably the Achilles heel of it. I think in many ways, there's a lot of stuff as well that Descartes does actually recognize that is actually good. I mean, when it comes to the mental, we tend to think that there's questions of introspection where we're actually trying to make sense of what we believe, what something's like, what I shall choose. How do I evaluate that one thing is true rather than another? How am I accountable to other people? All of these, um, these questions seem to lead us down the route of ethics down the route of choice, down the route of art, maybe, down the route of descriptions, what am I talking about? And um, the, the, the insistence that, no, 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 that these questions cannot be asked and that we have to simply restrict ourselves to prop, um, propositions that have clear truth conditions, 
I think can be too much of a straitjacket. And rather than always helping the project of understanding, I think it can actually get in the way of it and stop us from asking important questions because of its uh, origin, I think, too much in the demands of progress, really, that logical positivism insisted upon, whereby its propositions could all be shown to be true or false, and therefore working towards a secure body of knowledge, or at least imitating the scientific method in achieving progress. But I think the philosophical project of understanding is, is sort of a richer model of understanding, and it can't be restricted to the criteria of science that logical positivism insisted upon. And behaviorism, I think, is in many ways a result of that linguistic program. That's great. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, Sally, Michael, who wants to go next? Uh, I'm happy to, to go next. Um, firstly, I would say it's important to acknowledge the differences between hard and soft, particularly to put my teacher hat on for a moment. Um, if you are writing the essay on this in the AQA philosophy exam, to show that there's soft behaviorism has certain improvements on hard behaviorism, can deal with certain issues that hard behaviorism can't. That's important. But ultimately, I think I'm going to actually steal the conclusion that Putnam comes to, that although behavior is incredibly important in our understanding of other people's mental states, and also actually in terms of how we talk about our own mental states, it's very, you know, we, we learn the language of mental states via public behavior. If, if, if Wittgenstein is to be believed, you know, some, somebody cries, we ask why they're sad. But then it would be a mistake to confuse the evidence for ascribing mental states with the mental states themselves. So we do use behaviour to make a good guess, which is what it is, you know, well, the guess is probably an understatement, a good kind of um, attempt to understand people's mental states, but we cannot reduce linguistically or otherwise people's mental states to behaviour. So Putnam uses the example of polio and he says, you know, we would have these symptoms and via these symptoms we would diagnose the disease polio that we couldn't see. And we were pretty, yeah, it was pretty good. And then we discovered the virus and we discovered the virus was what you know, polio actually was. And we've also discovered that you could have the symptoms without the virus and the virus without the symptoms, despite the use of those symptoms in diagnosing the virus. And I think it's really important to understand behaviour like that. So behaviour is really useful for diagnosing those mental states, but they're not one and the same just like the symptoms are not the virus. You can have mental states without behaviour and you can have behaviour without mental states, despite their use. So I think for me, it's a question of recognising the importance of behaviour without the analytic reduction that behaviourism tries to achieve. That's great. Thanks, Sally. Michael? I don't know what I think. I think... Well, perhaps we'll, perhaps we'll observe like, your behaviour and tell you. Yeah, maybe I could. Let's see what comes out my mouth, right? That, that's how I can tell what's going to happen next. So I, th I think... I mean, I would, I suppose I, what I want to do is end by posing a, a, a distinction or a difficulty for what Adrian has said and what Sally has said, and then I don't have to have my own thoughts. So uh, Adrian, I think, was, was describing something which was more akin to the hard behaviorism. And in that respect, I, I, I agree with a lot of what he says. That particular project of translation doesn't seem to work quite right. But I think that Ryle... And the more we understand Ryle, the better we understand Ryle, the more Ryle escapes some of those, some of those points of, of definition and reduction, as we, kind of, we were talking about earlier. Now, I, I think one of the things which I find most attractive about Ryle's behaviorism is what Sally was just describing about how we learn language and how that's really important. Because no matter what you 
no matter how kind of far you drill into this in terms of verifying mental states and so on, the whole way in which we do it does still continue to require subjects to articulate things using concepts which they have understood. And I think that's really important. You know, how does the child know that what it's feeling is pain? And that requires this something else, somebody else to observe its behavior, identify it, teach it the word, the, the concept of pain in some way. What comes before that, interestingly for Ryle, and here I don't know if I want to agree with him at all, is, is he wants to distinguish sensation, which he says is not mental at all. He says, when I'm talking about the mind, I'm talking about intelligent behavior. Animals don't have minds in that sense. Like, uh-oh. Okay, there's a there's a kind of um right. So so for Ryle, it's almost like the sensations he could let. Well, sensations are probably just brain states. They're probably kind of physical things. And there's kind of elements of Descartes which even allow for this. If you read into it, so so Ryle's whole idea of of dispositions of behavior and the problems with so he wasn't actually applying it to things perhaps like pain and sensations and so on. It's quite it's quite strange. So I wasn't, I'm not quite sure what, the, what, what I think on that one, except to kind of note that maybe there's a mixed model that might, one might want to bring out here that sensations or some form is, is more like a, a, a type a mind-brain identity theory thing. But the problem then, and this is the problem I would, I would pose to what Sally has said with the analogy from about polio and the virus, what does the discovery of the virus look like when you're looking for the mental state? So we've got the symptoms of polio, and that's the behavior. And then behind it, we discover the virus. Okay, so we've got, you know, the, the symptoms that I'm afraid of snakes. And then I discover the fear of snakes itself through empirical observation. As a philosopher, I'm really scratching my head now. Now I can empirically observe a brain state or something like that. But I'm not going to be able to see in a Petri dish a fear of snakes the same way I can see in a Petri dish a virus. So the, if the metaphor or the analogy doesn't work, then there can't be that extra thing that we can separate off from it to say, and this is where I think Wittgenstein's notion of criteria, which is more than evidence, it's stronger than evidence, but it is something where you can break the link. And I think that's something which is what Ryle was really trying to get out, uh, you know, get going here, is that the mind is defined by dispositions to behave. That's the real, that's the crucial insight of his form of behaviorism. That, and then we can kind of, we can extract and create scenarios where we've made it a little bit more like we don't want to apply that. We don't want that connection to be as strong. But the very idea of the mind or things which are minded entirely depends upon a community of people who behave and observe each other's behavior in certain sorts of ways. And I think there's something in that that we still want to hold on to. So I think there's some, some, there's some nugget. I don't know exactly what to do with it, but there's some nugget there that I think is worth preserving from Ryle's approach specifically, but not so much Hempel's. Can I come in on that? I'd just like to sort of agree in many ways with, with Michael on that one. I think if I remember correctly, that he described himself as a phenomenologist, uh, which I found shocking at first when I heard it. And I think he was also interested by Heidegger as well, Gilbert Ryle. And, um, and Heidegger, of course, very much talks about being in the world and contextual knowing rather than some clearly reductive program where you explain one thing in terms of something else. 
Um, and obviously, he's also heavily influenced by the later Wittgenstein, in particular, and ordinary language philosophy. So, yeah, I, I would agree that in many ways, he's trying to take us away from the mental as some sort of separate thing that we have to identify and better understand what we mean by our sentences when we discuss the mental in um, the everyday. That's great. Thanks, Adrian and Michael and Sally. And perhaps we should draw things to a close there. I hope you found that useful, students. And we should thank uh, our guests for all their thoughts and explanations. So, Sally, thanks very much for coming on again. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, And Michael, thanks to you. Thanks. It's always a pleasure, Simon. And Adrian, thanks for coming on again uh, as well. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. Uh, And thanks to you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. And I hope you'll listen to a few more episodes from Philosophy Gets Schooled.